Jesus came into this world to destroy the works of the devil. That is why Jesus came. Whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, you are in the middle of a war. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 5 once again, Mark chapter 5. And uh, we have been looking at this bizarre story of this demoniac that is restored by our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Allow me to begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 20. We, of course, have looked at half of this passage, and so I'll spend part of the time reviewing, just to bring you up to speed, uh, of what we discussed last time, uh, and then we will see how this account ends in an amazing and dramatic way. Mark chapter 5, let us hear God's word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of our living God. Please be seated as we ask for his help. Our great God, we come before you before this amazing account that we want to continue looking at this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would help us not to be so focused on demons and Satan, but help us to be focused on discipleship and our Savior. Help us not to be so focused on the mysteries of the supernatural world of which we know very little, and help us to be more focused upon the supernatural nature of the new birth, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that indwells your people. Lord, help us not to be so focused upon the man in this account, but help our focus to be on our responsibility to do what this man did, and that is to proclaim the reign and the rule and the salvation of King Jesus with all that we know. Bless us and open this text to us as you did last week. Do it again this week that we might have understanding hearts, minds, and souls. We ask this in the blessed name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We began looking at this account last week, and as we began looking at this account, one of the things that we pointed out was the interesting parallels between the calming of this demoniac and the calming of the storm and the sea that we saw in the previous account in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. We saw in that account that Jesus tamed the storm-tossed seas, and we see in this account that he tames a demon-possessed man. We also saw that at the end of that account, the disciples who naturally were fearful of the storm, this was a storm of their lives, a storm that threatened their lives literally, They were actually more fearful of Jesus at the end of that account than they were of the storm. They were fearful of his power, fearful of his ability to calm the winds and the waves. They had never seen anything like this. In the account that we are looking at now with the demoniac, we also see that that story ends with fear. It ends with fear, not by the man who had been delivered, but fear from the townspeople. Fear from the witnesses who clearly in this story are not merely focused on the power of Jesus delivering this man, but the power of Jesus to have such operative power over demons 
that the demons would be driven out and be driven into pigs who would then be destroyed. They were fearful uh, for the stability of their own economy. They were fearful of that sort of power being in their region which would turn their lives upside down. This was an otherworldly power. They were fearful of Jesus. And in both accounts, whether we like to admit it or not, fear does not lead to faith. On the disciples' part, they sit in the boat and they ask the question, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? But they stop short of outwardly and verbally professing him to be the Son of God. In this account, the fear of the townspeople does not lead to faith. It leads, leads to a rejection as they drive him out of their region. And the irony in all of this is, of course, that while the townspeople reject Jesus and don't profess Him to be the Son of God, and while the disciples, at least at this point, aren't outwardly professing Him to be such, the demons have no problem professing Him to be, as it is stated in the text in verse 7, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. James is clear in James 2.19 that the demons believe that God is one and they shudder with fear. The demons understand that when Satan fell from heaven, that is Lucifer, we read about him in Isaiah 14 and we read about him earlier. When he fell from heaven, his objective was to destroy this world. His objective was to destroy God's creation. His objective was to bring chaos into the world. And he did that through one temptation and tempting our first parents, Adam and Eve, who succumbed to that temptation and plunged the whole human race into sin. This is why the Bible summarizes the purpose of Jesus in 1 John 3, 8 as this. Jesus came into this world to destroy the works of the devil. That is why Jesus came. Whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, you are in the middle of a war. And there are only two sides in this war. There is the side of God. That's the good side. There is the side of Satan. That is the bad side. As we see Jesus calming the storms, we see that Jesus is putting the water back into order. The pre-incarnate Christ in the book of Genesis separated the waters. And uh, in calming the waves and in calming the wind, Jesus is putting the waters back in order. In the account that we are focusing on this week and last week, we see that Jesus is bringing back in order demons who were originally fallen angels. They rebelled against God. They rebelled in heaven against God. They were cast down from heaven. And we see that even these demons, 6,000 of them in one person, cannot thwart the authority of King Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus, who um, gave dominion to man in the garden before sin, this pre-incarnate Jesus has become the incarnate Jesus. He has become the last Adam, the second Adam, who has come into his world to restore order and to restore dominion as the God-man. And perhaps like no other account in all of the Bible, we see the power of Jesus, the dramatic power of Jesus put on display. It's one thing for Jesus to cure a disease. It's one thing for Jesus to restore sight to the blind to restore hearing to the deaf, uh, to make a crippled man walk, 
to restore a withered hand. It's quite another thing for Jesus to have the power to tell demons what to do. That is a power that is undeniable. That is a power that you must do business with. Because if Jesus has the power over Satan, He has power over you. Jesus has power over Satan. Jesus has power over this world. He has power over your soul. You are not the captain of your own soul. You are not in control of your life. There is a reigning Lord Jesus who is ruling over all things. And He came into this world to deliver sinners from their sin, from the bondage that sinners find themselves in, which is a bondage to Satan. And if you remain in that bondage in this world, you will remain in that bondage for all of eternity. You will die a death that will result in a Christless eternity apart from the only one who can restore you to eternal life, who can forgive you of your sins, who can restore in you what you originally were created to be in your father Adam. And that is one who is perfect, without sin, reconciled to your Father and to your Creator. So what we're dealing with in this account is very serious. Now this account of the Gerasene demoniac in verses 1-20 through really provides for us very simply five testaments to the majestic power of Jesus over Satan. Jesus reveals Himself to be exactly what the demons profess Him as He is in His identity, the Son of the Most High God. And there are five testaments to the majestic power of Jesus over Satan. First of all, we saw what we refer to as the impossible power of Jesus. The impossible power of Jesus in verses 1-5. through Here we have Jesus coming and crossing the Sea of Galilee. He's on the western side and He crosses the eastern side. And we read in verse 3 that He's met by a man who lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead. No one could bind him anymore, not even with chains and shackles. He would wrench, as verse 4 says, the chains apart. He would break those shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one until this day, because Jesus would fully subdue this man, overcome by an impossible power. It would only be the impossible power of Jesus that could overcome that power. This was a man living in unclean tombs, surrounded by unclean Gentiles, operating an unclean business. There were pigs nearby, and this particular man was possessed by unclean spirits. The people, that is the townspeople, tried to tame him, and there were moments of comparative sanity in which he would allow them to do that. They would chain him so he wouldn't hurt others, and he wouldn't hurt himself. But before you knew it, This power was so great that it overwhelmed him and overcame him, and he would break the chains. Verse 5 says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cunning himself with stones. Crying out because he wanted his soul delivered from these demons. Crying out physically from the pain, perhaps scraping himself with the stones to release the evil spirits from him. He was a desperate man. What needs to be highlighted is that this was an untamable power. He couldn't tame himself, and no one else could tame him. No one could subdue him, as verse 4 says. Demazo, no one could tame him. That is a word that is used to describe the taming of wild beasts. 
This man was out of control. He was like a wild animal. And no one had the ability to tame him. We noted in verse 3 that there are three negatives. No one could bind him anymore. And verse 4 says, no one had strength to subdue him. Three negative verbs used in verses 3 and 4, udai, udai, sinukete, to express the fact that not anyone, not at all, no, not one, could tame this man. Mark is trying to highlight the fact that there is only one power that can overcome this sort of power, and it's the impossible power of Jesus. And we begin to see that impossible power of Jesus on display when we move to the second testament to Jesus' power over Satan. We move from the impossible power of Jesus, verses 1 through 5, to the inevitable power of Jesus in verses 6 through 10. We saw this last week. If you notice in verse 6, this inevitable power of Jesus is seen in prostration. When this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Literally, he falls on his face. He bows to King Jesus and... Um, There's something going on here that is somewhat mysterious. As this man, seeing Jesus from afar, begins to run, you begin to see the power being released from him. In his physical body, he is running to meet Jesus. But these demons are screaming and crying out with a loud voice. As verse 7 says, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demons are overtaking the vocal cords of this man and screaming screaming in apprehension of being in the presence of Jesus while the man runs toward him and prostrates himself before Jesus. They proclaim, as verse 7 says, that he is the son of the Most High God. So the prostration and the bowing leads to this proclamation of the identity of who Jesus is. As I said, an identity that even the disciples didn't outwardly and professedly make in the boat after the storm was calmed. And that prostration and proclamation leads to a plea. He was saying to him in verse 8, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So you have an interchange, an exchange taking place between Jesus and the demons. And between one demon who is the spokesman, his name is Legion. Legion is a reference to 6,000. That was a a category in the Roman army of the, the largest group of soldiers this man assumingly had 6,000 demons, and Legion, who is the leader, is begging him not to send them out of the country. Satan is relentless in wanting to cause havoc. He wants to cause havoc in the souls of everyone in this world. He infiltrates false religions. He infiltrates countries. He infiltrates political regimes. He infiltrates churches. He infiltrates societies. His power is not equal to Jesus' power. That much is evident clear. We know you have more power than us. You're the son of the most high God. But please don't send us out of this country. Do what you must. Do what you will. We are at your mercy. But don't send us out of this country. A reminder to us that Jesus' power is greater than Satan's. But Satan will stop at no end to cause havoc in societies and in souls. 
But you get something here of the glimpse of the inevitable power of Jesus. Nothing is going to stop Jesus, not even the power of 6,000 demons. That then led us to the third testament to Jesus' power over demons. The impossible power of Jesus, the inevitable power of Jesus, then took us to the infallible power of Jesus in verses 11 through 13. Very strange here. A great herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, Mark points out. And verse 12 says, The demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So apparently, in the midst of the frenzy, in the midst of their panic, and being in the presence of the Son of the Most High God, the first thing they see are pigs on the hillside, 2,000 of them, as verse 13 says, and they beg Jesus that he would send them into the pigs. Interestingly, this prayer request, we could call it, by the demons, is granted. Jesus listens to the demons. Verse 13, He gave them permission. They didn't persuade Him to do anything. He gave them permission. He is in control. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. One verse can hardly encapsulate the drama of this event. The herdsmen, who were off in a distance doing their pig herding, whatever is required in that, all of a sudden see all of these pigs and hear the tumbling of the hooves and the splashing of the water as one by one these pigs enter into the depth of the sea and are drowned. It is unclear as to how close they are to Jesus and to this man and to this event as to how much of it they saw unfold, but they know they lost their pigs, and when they went to evaluate and to research what had happened, they understood that Jesus was the power behind it. We're going to see that in a moment. We saw last week that many commentators, and it would surprise you how many commentators and the names that I would give you, who almost seemed to apologize that Jesus would allow pigs to be destroyed. We emphasize the fact that Jesus is infallible in His power. He is pure in His power. The sovereignty of God is never pictured in Scripture as a threat. It's always pictured as a comfort. To know that we have a powerful God who is not only powerful, but He is perfect. His sovereignty is not capricious. It is not arbitrary. He always works in accordance with the counsel of His will. And whatever He chooses to do is perfect and right and just. That is an important point of application because there are times in our lives, beloved, in which we don't understand the providences of God. There are times in which we are perplexed at the providences of God, the strange providences of God. Here Jesus grants the requests of demons. Here Jesus grants the requests of demons who destroy pigs, which would have been affecting the economy of this region. It would have affected the jobs of the herdsmen. It would have affected the Roman army because it's been postulated that these herds of pigs actually fed the Roman army. There are times in our lives in which Jesus strips us of things. Perhaps it is money. Perhaps it is possessions. Perhaps it is a job. Perhaps it is a loved one who dies a premature death. Perhaps it is some sin that causes scandalous destruction in the church. Perhaps it is a handicap of one of our children. Perhaps it is a learning disability. Perhaps it is failure. 
But whatever it is, God is infallible in His power. We don't have to understand all the reasons for what God does. But one thing is for sure, as we saw last week, that Jesus is always compassionate and loving in His power. Better that 2,000 pigs be destroyed than 2,000 people. This little town had been terrorized by this guy for far too long. And in God's grace, the demons not only didn't destroy this man, but they didn't destroy the town. Instead, they destroyed the pigs. Pigs, by the way, who are not created in the image of God. No animal is created in the image of God. Go back to Genesis, and you will learn very quickly that God gave dominion over the animal kingdom, and that dominion was given to man. Dominion over the creatures of this world. God's power is powerful, but God's power is also perfect and pure and pristine. It is infallible. That's important to understand. But all of this now takes us to the fourth testament, highlighted here by Mark, of Jesus' power over Satan. We've seen the impossible power of Jesus, the inevitable power of Jesus, the infallible power of Jesus. Now note very clearly the irrefutable power of Jesus in verses 14 through 17. No individual eyewitness could argue against the superiority of Jesus' power. It was irrefutable. Notice verse 14. Mark says, The herdsmen fled and told what had happened in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. Such power was so hard to believe that after it was told to people both in the city, notice that, and in the country, they came out to see for themselves what had happened. This was such a, an unbelievable account. You're telling me the guy that, who has been, who's been terrorizing uh, the countryside and the village for this long has been tamed? You're telling me that 2,000 pigs, for some unexplained reason, rushed down to the sea? Matthew 8.33 says they reported everything. That tells me that they reported not just that their pigs were dead, that is the herdsmen, but also how Jesus delivered this man. This is not just a report that says, look what happened to our pigs. This is a report that says, look what Jesus did to this man. They had seen this man changed. They had seen this man converted. In an instant, he was saved physically from the demons and he was saved spiritually from hell. Now, we don't know the timeline here, but perhaps this happened the morning after the miracle to give people some time to come out to see. And when they got there, what did they see? Well, notice verse 15. It says they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. That's very interesting language to me. They did not go to the demon-possessed man and see Jesus. No, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. They are drawn to the power of Jesus. They are drawn to the presence of Jesus. Something they had heard from the herdsmen drew them to Jesus rather than the man. The focus of the story is Jesus, not the man, not the demons. It's Jesus. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and it says they were afraid. 
The man was clothed because we saw in Luke 8.27 last time that this man was walking around naked. Not anymore. Jesus found a tunic for him. One of the disciples found a tunic for him. Somewhere he realized that it was a shame to be naked and he was clothed. Not only that, but Mark says he was in his right mind. So this is no longer a possessed man. This is a man in his right mind. Luke 8.35 adds that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 8 just for a moment so you can see this. Verse 34 says, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And verse 35 says, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man. Again, they came to Jesus and they found the man. They happened to find him, but they were coming to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. What a picture. This man is now in his right mind and he's being discipled by Jesus. The Bible is clear that you cannot be a follower of Jesus without the transformation of your mind. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. You can't be a Christian without the transformation of your mind. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Christianity is about understanding theology. It's about understanding the character of God. This man's mind is put in the right. He's sitting and learning at his new master's feet, having been delivered from his old master, the devil. Jesus had calmed this raging man, just as he had calmed the raging seas. These waves of aggression and moral and physical filthiness, they're all gone, he's clothed, and his calm demeanor was a human picture of a peaceful, placid lake after a storm. He is now a disciple sitting with the other disciples at Jesus' feet, learning from Him. He had been an enemy of God. He had been fighting with hell's host, and now he is an ally of Jesus. He is at peace with God. A beautiful picture. This man was certainly converted. He was not merely delivered from demons. And of course, all of this is a picture of the fact that not all of us were possessed by demons, but all of us were in bondage to Satan before our conversion. And if we are true believers, we sit at the feet of Jesus. We listen to the instruction of Jesus. We listen to the voice of Jesus. We become followers of Jesus. But that is in contrast to the people. Because back in Mark chapter 5, verse 15 says at the end of it, they were afraid. Just as the disciples had been afraid of Jesus after He calmed the storm, the people are afraid at the impossible power of Jesus to subdue this man. But notice that no one argued this was a farce. This power was irrefutable. They were afraid, but they didn't argue, well, this didn't happen. They knew it happened. It was irrefutable. And as people came, the story was relayed again and again. You can imagine the excitement of the story being told over and over and over again as more and more people from the town poured in to witness this man sitting at Jesus' feet. The man they had known as being possessed all their lives. And so notice verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. I just imagine the herdsmen calling the townspeople to come and as they come 
to Jesus and this man, they explain exactly what happened, how this man had been delivered. The man was no longer roaming the mountains, screaming like a madman. He was in a conversation with Jesus and the disciples. Instead of gnashing himself and or gashing himself with stones, he was laughing and having a time with Jesus and the disciples. And the people are not afraid of the man anymore. They're now afraid of Jesus. They're in the presence of his irrefutable power. There is an incident in Luke 11.26 where Jesus cast a demon out and seven more demons returned. That doesn't happen here because Mark wants us to see and of course God wants us to see the power of Jesus over 6,000 demons. Not one of those demons came back. This is a scene of joy. This is a scene of celebration. This is a scene of amazement. This is the irrefutable power of Jesus on display. But to highlight their fear of Jesus over their fear of the demoniac at his worst moments in their life, notice what verse 17 says. Mark says, And though there was all this excitement, Though there was all this celebration and the joy that this man had been delivered and their town was no longer threatened, the people began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now there's a lot of begging that goes on in the story. The demons beg Jesus not to send them out of the country. Here, the people beg Jesus to leave. Think about this for a moment. At least they had conjured up enough courage in the past to put chains and shackles on the demoniac. But they have no courage to be in the presence of Jesus. Just as the demons beg to be away from His presence, the townspeople beg Him to leave their presence. And the reason is the same. They were afraid of Jesus. What were they afraid of? Well, perhaps... They were afraid that if Jesus changed their lives as He did with this man, it could come with great cost to their livelihood, to their way of living, their means of living. This was a rejection of the power of the gospel to change them. They cared more for the pigs than they did the demoniac. They cared more for their money and their economy than their own souls. Jesus said on one occasion, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? These people were afraid of the wrong thing. They were afraid of Jesus. And in verse 16, that word afraid is the Greek word phobeo. It is where we get our English word phobia. The problem with sinners who reject Jesus is not that they don't believe in the power of Jesus. It's that they have a gospel phobia that the good news of salvation is really bad news because it will reorient and change their lives. They love their sin too much. And beloved, that is exactly what is happening here. The power of Jesus is irrefutable. But so is the love of sin. The draw to sin. The draw to materialism. These herdsmen, these townspeople, whatever their trade may have been, supported pagan lifestyles. They loved their property. They loved their animals. They loved their lives. They loved their paganism. 
They didn't want Jesus anywhere near them because they knew that Jesus would threaten their false gods and their paganism. They didn't want what cost these herdsmen their livelihood. So they beg him to leave. Notice again, as we did in Jesus calming the storm, the fear of the people does not lead to faith. But fear of God should lead to faith. It doesn't here. They literally run Jesus out of town. And therefore, they spiritually run Him out of their lives. This is really, really a tragic, tragic episode. But it causes us to ask ourselves a very important question. And that is, what is it about Jesus? What is it about His Word? What is it about His commands? What is it about the duty that He places upon us that we fear so much that we know that if we follow Him, obey Him, and trust Him, it'll change something in our lives. Do we really fear that change more than we fear Jesus? The one who has the power over demons. How can one possibly argue that Jesus is not powerful? He obviously is powerful. To argue that Jesus is not powerful is to literally play with the fire of hell. To argue that As a Christian, I'm safe in the arms of Jesus. My identity is in Christ. I'm hidden in Jesus. I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. I stand in grace. To do that is to play with fire. It may reveal that we're not true followers of Jesus. Because it is the townspeople that are fearful of what Jesus can change about their lives. The demoniac is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening, ready to follow and to do whatever Jesus says to do. Sovereignty of Jesus over this man is a picture of His sovereignty over the church. His lordship over the church. His lordship over our lives. And for different people, that will mean different things. For some, that will be that they will be called into full-time ministry. For others, that will mean that they marry someone who's called into full-time ministry. For others, that will mean selling their business and giving the money to a missionary. For others, it will mean being a faithful member of a local congregation and serving the Lord with your gifts and having no strings attached. But whatever it is, Jesus has sovereign authority over every soul in the church. And every Christian will sit at the feet of Jesus. And ask Him where He would send them. And where He would have them to go. That is the calling of all Christians. This is the irrefutable power of Jesus. But this strange and tragic story, for the majority of people, ends on a cheerful note. We've seen Jesus' power over Satan highlighted in His impossible power, in His inevitable power, in His infallible power, His irrefutable power, notice with me fifth and last, the invariable power of Jesus. We see in verses 18 through 20 that someone who is truly saved and truly delivered from bondage to Satan will obey Jesus and their obedience will be marked, listen by this, and their willingness to spread the news of their deliverance from the power of Satan. Once again, we see begging And this time it's on the part of the restored demoniac. I love this, verse 18. 
As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now this is tender, and it's also very telling. This man so clearly and sincerely and powerfully loves Jesus that he wants to go with him. The townspeople want Jesus out of their presence. This man wants to be in the presence of Jesus. He wants to be in the light, not in the darkness. He wants to be in the presence of Jesus. He is literally following Jesus into the boat, a picture of discipleship and of following Jesus. And remember, I I gave to you a little bit of details about the type of boat, this fishing vessel that Jesus was riding in with the other disciples that would have held about 15 people. One of these boats was uncovered recently by archaeologists. There would have been more than enough room for this man in the boat. But here is a strange twist to the story. The demons beg Jesus to go to the pigs, and Jesus grants the request. The man begs Jesus if he can go with him, and Jesus denies the request. Notice verse 19. It says, He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is sort of strange, you have to admit. I mean, how can Jesus grant the request of demons and deny the request of this man? He grants the request of the demons who are hell-bent on destroying pigs. He doesn't grant the request of the man who has been heaven-sent to follow Jesus and to be with Jesus. Those who accuse Jesus of lacking compassion for the pigs, are the very same ones who accuse Jesus of lacking compassion and allowing this man to go with him. And as I said last week, such accusers are those who don't want God to be God. The very point of the story is that God is sovereign. God can do what He wants to do. And I said at the beginning that God sometimes does things we don't understand. We might not understand sometimes why God does what He does. God does not always give what we want. And let me just say, that's not always a bad thing. Because sometimes what we want most won't give us the greatest blessing. As we're going to see, God blesses this man with a blessed and prestigious and expansive ministry that he otherwise would not have had if Jesus had granted his request. Not only that, but let me just say a word about compassion. You might be all bent out of shape that Jesus allowed the pigs to be destroyed. You may be all bent out of shape that Jesus leaves this area and goes somewhere else. Where's the compassion? Listen, Jesus had more compassion for a man created in His image than He did the pigs. And Jesus has compassion on this region who rejected Him because although He is leaving the region this man is going to take Jesus with him everywhere he goes. Jesus is having compassion on the very people that run him out of town. So Jesus tells this man in verse 19, go home. Go to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. 
I just want to say evangelism always begins that way. It always begins with simplicity. Those who know us best, those who see us most. That's evangelism. Those who know us best, those who see us most. That begins with our wives, our children, our co-workers, people in the community, and expands out from there. You know, there is a type of personal evangelism that I think came out of decisionist and Arminian crusade thinking, really from 1950s on, and you can even trace that back even further than that. But this sort of personal evangelism says very simply this, we must press everyone we meet with a decision to follow Christ and be converted on the spot. And even Reformed people who don't believe in that sort of crusade, Arminian, decisionist theology sometimes treat unbelievers like objects instead of like people created in the image of God. Thinking that a conversion is a notch in their belt. But that's not how kingdom evangelism works, at least not according to Jesus. Remember the parable of the farmer back in uh, Mark chapter 4. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus says that evangelism is the planting of a seed. It's something we do night and day. We do it continuously. We don't know what's going to happen. We rest on the pillow of God's sovereignty. What better man to minister to the Gentiles in this Gentile region than this Gentile demoniac who over a period of time would tell so many people what Jesus had done for him that people would be converted. He would go to his friends first and tell them how much the Lord had done for him, how much God had mercy on him. And I just want to say that you may not feel like you're an evangelist. You may not feel like you have the gift of evangelism, but you're still called to share the gospel. The psalmist speaks from his own experience. He says in Psalm 66, 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what He has done for my soul. That's all Jesus asks this man to do. Go tell people how much the Lord has done for you, how He has had mercy upon you. That's faithful witnessing. Telling anybody and everybody who will listen what God has done for us. It's a very natural thing. It's not an artificial thing. It's not an unnatural thing. Remember the woman who left the well after speaking with Jesus. She left her water jar. She went away into the town and she said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the Bible says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Over and over again in the Bible, Jesus' interactions with those who are converted, they simply go and tell from their experience what Jesus had done for them. You remember the man who was cured from his blindness and they accused Jesus of being a sinner. And the man says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is putting the light of Christ and His Gospel on that lampstand that we talked about in Jesus' parable back in Mark chapter 4 and verse 21. 
Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. I believe this man becomes the first missionary sent by Jesus. And the first missionary sent by Jesus is a Gentile going to minister to Gentiles. Now we need to think theologically here. We're talking about the kingdom of God. In studying the Gospels, we're talking about the kingdom of God. In studying Mark's Gospel, we're talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God, right? Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Even this early in Jesus' ministry, He is concerned that His kingdom expand to Gentiles. He is concerned, even before the full measure of the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, He is concerned for the lost souls among the Gentile world. His kingdom is already expanding to Gentiles. In fact, only two chapters later, go with me to chapter 7 just for a moment, and notice in verse 31... Jesus returned from the region of Tyre. He went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. These are people from the Decapolis. It's a confederation of ten cities located in this exact region where Jesus restored the demon-possessed man. There are some disciples there already by chapter 7 who had converted to Christ. They bring this deaf man who has a speech impediment to Jesus. This former demoniac was a true disciple of Christ and he spread the news of Christ everywhere he went. He opened this whole region to the gospel. So Jesus... uh, wouldn't let the man go with him, but the man took Jesus with him everywhere he went. And notice how he obeyed Jesus to the T. Verse 20, the account ends. And he went away and began to proclaim. Interestingly, it's the same word for preach. This man is heralding the gospel. This is not a whisper. This is not a whisper. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. He is heralding the gospel. He's doing exactly what Jesus says. He proclaimed in the Decapolis, that's the confederation of ten cities I told you about in this region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now notice the similarity of language between verse 19 and verse 20. Jesus said, go tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how much He has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to say how much Jesus had done for him. But notice how in verse 19, Jesus says, go tell them how much the Lord has done for you. When Mark reports what he did in verse 20, he doesn't refer to Jesus as Jesus, he refers to Jesus as Lord. Obviously, Mark understands that he's Lord. But the point that Mark is trying to make is that when Jesus looked at this man, he said to him, I am now your Lord. Go tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. This is submission to the Lordship and the sovereignty of King Jesus. This man did not balk at that. He understood that Jesus was Lord. And he goes and he spreads the good news everywhere. 
And it says that everyone marveled. This is not a minor point. The Decapolis was a confederation of ten cities that were composed of Gentiles. These ten cities had been ruled by the Maccabees. They had been delivered under Roman general Pompey in 63 B.C. And they had been given great liberty and rule. They had their own rules about commercial trade. They had their own army. They had their own courts. They had their own currency. This was a massive conglomeration of Gentiles in ten cities. A massive number of people that this Gentile spread the gospel to. And it says, everyone marveled. He proclaimed it in the Decapolis and everyone marveled. I love this because Jesus, even at this point, cared for His mission to the Gentiles. He would at times mention His desire for them to be saved. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 10, Jesus says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, that is, to all the Gentiles. Or Mark 14 and verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Talking about the woman who anointed Jesus at Bethany. Jesus wants the gospel to be proclaimed in the world, among the nations, among the Gentiles. That should tell us a little bit about what the kingdom of God looks like. Let me be very clear. There is only one people of God. There are not two people of God. God has one elect people that He chose before the foundation of the world who are citizens of this kingdom. This man's society, he was a Gentile convert, this man's society literally said to Jesus, leave, you're not welcome among us. That's what they said. Not only did Jesus not honor that request, because... He sent this man to proclaim the gospel. Jesus had honored that request. If Jesus had left that area with no witness, He would have been promoting an escapist theology. That is popular in our day. People will say, I've even heard Christians say, let the society rot. It's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. Let it go to hell. That's interesting to me because Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, you rejected me, I'm just going to escape. Remember, this is the church. The apostles are the foundation of the church. So the seed of the church is in this boat. And if Jesus had taken this man with him, the church would be rowing away from a hostile, godless, and wicked society, escaping. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus goes away to go to a different place. He would come back. He leaves this man here as a witness to influence this society. He orders this man to proclaim the gospel because Christians aren't meant to live in communes or monasteries. Jesus is expanding His kingdom. And He asks all of His followers to interact with the world, to love those in the world, to boldly share the gospel with unbelievers. He tells us to have a voice in the world for religious freedom. Otherwise, we don't have a platform to proclaim the gospel. This is how the mustard seed blossoms into a tree that fills God's new garden of Eden, His new creation, 
His kingdom that composes not just ethnic Jews, but Jews and Gentiles who are one in Christ. Remember back in Mark chapter 4, don't forget, Jesus has just given the parable of the mustard seed in verse 30. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is the expansion of the kingdom of God. This man, we don't know what sort of missionary he was. I doubt he was full-time. This man went back to his village. He got a normal job. He lived among his friends. Maybe he had a family. He went to that job. He proclaimed the gospel. He interacted with those in the community with such a high level of integrity that it left a massive impact on a confederation of ten cities. To say this, we don't need more full-time ministers The church needs more full-time Christians. People that are faithful day in and day out. Day in and day out. That's how revival comes. The gospel is preached one by one. Lives are changed as we live consistently with the gospel we profess in our doctrine, in our doxology, in our duty. How we live, what we proclaim, how we worship, what we believe. And all of this changes the world. The true world changer is Jesus. He's the true world changer. He used this man to literally influence a whole society. And he uses his power through us to influence the world to bow to King Jesus. This is an amazing story because it really is not a story about demons. It's not about Satan. It's a story about the church. It's a story about what true disciples are and what true disciples do. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. We've been delivered from our bondage to Satan. We've been forgiven. We've been restored. And we've been commissioned. And we've been sent as the church to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. The church needs more qualified ministers. But the church does not need more full-time ministers. It needs full-time Christians, fully committed, fully engaged with all that God places around us. Every relationship with every unbeliever you have ought to be an avenue by which you are pointing them to Christ. That's God's plan and purpose for the growth of His kingdom. Perhaps you've heard the story of a dentist who was fresh out of college and This dentist wanted to begin a business, but he didn't really have any connections within the community and he didn't have any patrons to fund his endeavor and he became discouraged. But one day, he saw a man who had the worst teeth in town. And he said to the man, I need some practice, so I want you to come to my office. After a few visits and several surgeries, This man, whose teeth were the worst of anyone in town, were immaculate, straight, bright, white. At the end of all of that, the man told the dentist, I don't have a dime to pay you. I'm too poor to pay you. And the dentist said, well, that's unacceptable. You will pay me. I want you to do one thing. 
Go and tell everybody that you see that you had the worst teeth in the world and that I fixed them. And so as this man opened his mouth to tell others, people marveled at his teeth and they began going in droves to this dentist. Because by illustration, as we speak forth the gospel, as we show the consistency of our lives, that is the proof that we've been changed by Jesus. We will have an impact on our society. A godless society, yes. A wicked society, yes. But we're not called to escape from it. We're not called to run from it. We're called to run to it, to embrace it, both by life and by lip. We proclaim the gospel. We don't do it alone because the church is one big mouth that proclaims the gospel. But you share Christ with all that you know. You live your life with integrity. As Peter says, that some people may ask you to to, to give the hope that is within you. Being a Christian is a full-time endeavor. A full-time job. And this restored demoniac shows us how the church must invest in the world in order to see God's kingdom spread. What a glorious episode of the power of King Jesus. As I said, one of the most dramatic events, if not the most dramatic event in the life of Jesus. But next time we will see Jesus continuing to do what He does as He begins to raise people from the dead. His power is undeniable and He will end up going back to Nazareth where He grew up. He will preach to them. They will marvel at His teaching. But they will want to kill Him. Even in His own hometown. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for this amazing account of the demoniac who was restored. Not only restored having demons cast out of Him, but also forgiven, changed. Lord, we thank You for His example because it tells us how we must live our lives for Your glory in proclaiming the Gospel. The church is called to declare the Gospel in this world. We are not called to seek escape from this world. Your kingdom is to influence this world for good. We are to be steadfast. We are to persevere in this endeavor in uh, whatever sphere You call us to. So Lord, we ask that You would help us to be faithful in that. We also recognize there could be those present with us that don't know Christ. They're still in bondage to Satan. Lord, we pray that You would give them the hope of the Gospel, the hope of Christ coming into this world to die for sinners, to shed His blood, to release us from our bondage to Satan, to forgive us, to satisfy Your wrath, through the sacrifice of Your Son. Help them to know that, to see that, to believe that, and to come to a saving knowledge of Christ even this day. We pray these things in the blessed name of our Savior Jesus, we ask it. Amen.